Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in to God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, your word is good. Um, And just as at the end of Luke 24, you uh, appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus and showed them all things from your word as it relates to you, uh, we pray today that you give us such a grace um, that just as they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke with us that as we examine your words today, that the same Holy Spirit would cause a burning in us to see you, to repent and believe, and to live our lives under your gracious rule. We pray this in your name. Amen. By the time I was in seminary, I had been Christian for nearly two decades. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school aged kindergarten through graduation where I memorized whole books of scripture, took numerous Bible survey classes. I'd been on staff at a church for nearly five years, preaching weekly during that time. But in one seminary class, they asked us to open up our Bibles to the book of Daniel, a book I'd preached out of before, and I couldn't find it. Too arrogant and too ashamed to open up in the midst of a seminary classroom to the table of contents in my Bible, I kind of looked, I started singing the Bible memory song in my head, the Bible like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I was trying to get there and I'd get to those prophets and everything would be a blur. And so as I was frantically singing and flipping, it got to the point where you either needed to know where it was or you were the fool. And so what I did is I looked around and found about where everyone else had opened their Bibles in class and flipped my Bible there and covered it and just nodded along, hoping no one would see where I was. Now, why do I share that story with you today? Because I want you to realize that there is no shame in realizing we don't know the Bible as well as we should. It's a big book. It's a book that we will never exhaust in all of our years of following Jesus here. It's got lots of things in it, but it's a book we should be growing in. It's not shameful to realize what you don't know. What is shameful is to realize what you don't know and choose to do nothing about it and choose to refuse to realize that God has given us his word and he wants to be known in the midst of it, that we, like any other child, grow in our walk with Jesus. And so what we're doing over the course of eight weeks is we are walking through the whole story of the Bible and we wanna help discouraged Bible readers find hope, non-Bible readers find confidence, and voracious Bible readers learn to see Jesus blazing on every page. And as we endeavor as a church to together read through the whole of scripture over two years, we want to do this so that we might encourage one another and help one another along the way. If you want to participate in this with us, you can download the Sovereign Hope app. The reading plan is right there, two chapters a day, six days a week uh, with Bible memory in it as well. We also have physical copies of the Bible reading plan back at the info desk. I'd love to invite you to join us with that. And so last week we began this series and we looked at the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then we stop our song. And what we saw in that is we saw the story of God and his people. And we're introduced to the three primary themes. You kids that are in here, do you remember those themes? The three Ps, God's people, God's presence, and God's place. God's perfect creation, Eden, included his place, the garden, his people, Adam and Eve, in his immediate presence, But something came and ruined it all, something called sin. And sin foiled what God designed. But the remainder of the Pentateuch and of Scripture is God's covenant plan to redeem all those things through Jesus Christ. So that through Jesus, what sin has distorted, we might again become God's people in God's place, in God's perfect presence. And so today we pick up in that story in what's often called the history or the former prophets, And we're going to be looking at six books today. We're going to be looking at the book of Judges, Joshua, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll notice the book of Ruth is normally sandwiched in there. And we're going to punt Ruth to later, and I'll tell you why when we get to that point. But our goal today is this, is as we look, we get to see Jesus in the history. We're going to come back and finish Israel's history in a couple weeks. So this is part one of Jesus in the history. And the main theme is going to be this. We're going to see God's people and the problem of leadership. God's people and the problem of leadership. And this story, or each sermon we have in this series has three goals. First, we're gonna survey the story. Then we're gonna study the story. And then lastly, we're gonna savor the savior of the story. In other words, our three goals are this. We want to learn to understand the whole story of scripture. It's 66 books, but one story. 
And then we want to study the Bible as it is written, that is, in context, in light of the genre that it's written in. And lastly, we want to apply the Bible to our heads, our hearts, and our hands. And so as I mentioned last week, this is going to be a lot of material. Uh, It's going to be drinking from a fire hose for a lot of it. And so I have uh, some resources in the back. There's a, a, a a resource page that's got other things that can help you understand the story of Scripture. You could take home and, and get books, books for your kids, books for you. And I'd invite you to do that. The pace is going to be really fast here. I'm not going to be as redundant as I normally am in my sermons. And so if you're a note taker, I would recommend setting aside all of that. Jonathan White didn't do it last week. And he, you were, you, it was bad, right? It's terrible, yes. So all of you shame Jonathan and then learn from him, okay? So, so uh, if, if you are a note taker and if you get a little panicked at the lack of structure, I would invite you to run into the back. Um, you could grab my manuscript there. You could take it home. You could read it. You could listen to it on the podcast, uh, and that's a great way. But I would encourage you, if at all possible, to just listen today because we're going to be flying through uh, six books of the Bible. So having said that, let's begin by surveying the story. This is our first point, surveying the story. Last week, we ended on a cliffhanger with a recreated Israel standing for the second time at the doorway to Canaan, the doorway of the promised land at the foot of the Jordan River, and they were faced with this decision. Will they go into God's promised land, God's new place, as God's new covenant people and live in God's presence? Or will they do what they did the last time they got to the banks of the Jordan River and fall away into sin and faithfulness? Now, on a big story, what's happening in the survey is we're seeing what happens when God's people cross that river to go into the promised land as they enter God's place. And specifically, we're gonna see how it relates to God's presence. God's goal, as you'll read in the book of Deuteronomy, is that his people will not just live in his place, but they will be distinct from the nations that are there. They will be distinctly God's people. And in so doing, it would be a blessing for them and a blessing to the nations. But as they move into the promised land, their success is short-lived. Their blessing is short-lived because their obedience and their faith is short-lived. And this is our primary theme, God's people and the problem of leadership. As you read, you'll notice key leaders in Israel's history, and there's two problems we have when we encounter these leaders. The first ones are that bad leaders ruin things, and the second one is that what good leaders they have, they inevitably die because they are created themselves. They are human. As the leadership fails, problems come. The people fail. As their good leaders die, so too does the people's obedience. So instead of entering into the land and being a transformed people, they begin to look just like the other nations in the promised land. They fail to be distinctly God's people. Instead of heeding what we looked at last week in Deuteronomy 4, where Moses said this, Know this and lay it up in your heart that the Lord is God and there is no other. By the end of this six-book chunk, these people are pluralistic and idolatrous. They worship all the false gods, and they give way to sin. And just like in the Pentateuch, there's both a geographic and a theological progression that you'll notice. In the Pentateuch, we saw geographically we were going from Eden to Canaan. And today, we're going from Canaan into captivity The progress of seeing them go into God's promised land at the beginning, optimistic and hopeful. At the end, we see them on account of their sin being carried away in captivity to the nation of Babylon. And as we follow this geographic process of Canaan to captivity, the theological progress becomes clear. And that is all of this happens because of the movement from leadership of being ruled by God's dominion and instead being ruled by man's depravity. God's dominion to man's depravity The more people reject God's rule, the more problems follow. The more human sin and depravity begins to ruin everything. And a key text for us to understand what's happening in this portion of scripture is what was read for us earlier. And it comes to us through Solomon, David's son, as he's appointed to lead Israel. And his prayer reveals to us the big theme we see today. And that is who is wise enough to lead God's people. And so I'm going to read a smaller portion of what was just read for us in 1 Kings chapter 3. And I want you to listen. Do you hear the themes of people, place, and presence? And do you hear the challenge of leadership? We're going to begin in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. 
because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and asked not for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemy, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after. And I will also give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David your father walked, then I shall lengthen your days." Who will be wise enough? Who will walk according to God's rules in such a way that their days will be lengthened in the land? Who will lead God's people to remain in God's promise, in God's place, in the midst of God's presence? That's the story. And so how do we study it? How do we engage in this story? Well, this is where we begin our second point as we turn to studying the story. And similar to what we looked at last week in the Pentateuch, you're going to encounter some songs, you're going to encounter some poetry, but for the most part, the genre of this passage is narrative. It's a story. Meaning, if you want to understand the meaning of it, you need to pay attention to the characters, where they're going and what they're doing. And an important thing you'll notice as you read this is that God's presence is often mediated and interwoven with God's human leaders. And that's because ever since we read in Exodus about Mount Sinai, God has revealed his presence in two places. We saw at Sinai that there was God's divine presence that came and dwelt on the mountain in cloud and fire and spoke to his people. And that presence, as Israel moves from Sinai into the promised land, will remain in what's called the Ark of the Covenant. This is where God's divine presence came to dwell amongst his people. And so as you're reading, pay attention to where God's divine presence is. That's going to be an important theme for you to follow. But there's another way in which God has revealed his presence, and that's God's ruling presence. God was not only to be divinely present in a space in the Ark of the Covenant, but he was to dwell in the midst of his people as his people worshipped him, obeyed him, and began to be more and more like him in their holiness. The more God's leaders ruled God's people according to God's law, the more they experienced the nearness of God's presence, the more they became like God because they were truly God's people. And it's in this way that God's leaders were a sort of intermediary or representation of God's presence. They remind God's people of this profound truth, that God's presence transforms people. God rules over his people by his word. It wasn't enough for God to simply dwell with them in a physical way in the Ark of the Covenant. He was to dwell with them as his people were transformed to become like him. God's presence changes us. And you'll see this as there are times where God's people have the Ark of the Covenant. They have this divine presence of God. But when you look at the nation of Israel, God is not present at all. They are idolatrous, they are disobedient, they are wicked. They do not act like God's people. And the moral of the story for us as we read this is that God is not a mascot. God's people are not marked off by bumper stickers or Sunday attendance. You can't simply have God in a box on your nightstand and be God's people. It's not this trinket that you get to, to have locked away and bring out and say, nah, look at what I have. You see it, now I'm putting it away. Why? Because God's, tra- God's presence is a transformative presence. He is holy and therefore those who truly dwell with him are made holy like him. That's what it means to be in God's presence. They not only see God as present and real, but they seek to align the whole of their lives in accord with this God who dwells with them. When God saves you and dwells with you, you begin to look like 
God, love like God. And this is why the issues of leadership are so intense in these books. Who will lead God's people into God's ruling presence? Who will help the people experience the transformative mercy of God and therefore remain in his covenant of blessing? You see, God saved Israel in order not just to bring them out of Egypt, but actually to bring them into his rule, to bring them into his place, to bring them back to the Garden of Eden, where they were not only in God's place, but they were God's people distinct in their affections, and they were ruled by God's immediate presence. You see, how often Israel forgets that is just a remnant of how often we forget that. You see, we're in church today, and so none of us probably fall into the error of forgetting that God is good. But we often fall into the error of believing that sin isn't. We believe that sin is just as good as God. We think that God is good, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes other things can be good too. Other rules, other authorities, other presences. We want God to save us out of the punishment of our sin. We don't want the punishment, but when we look at the actual act of sin, we say, well, is it really that bad? It can certainly provide many things for me, but we don't realize that God has come to save us by ruling over us, by not just taking us out of Egypt, but by making us his new people. If sin ruled, not God or his word, if sin ruled, it would not lead us back to Eden. It would lead us back to Egypt. If sin continues to exhibit authority and ruling presence in your life, it does not cause flourishing, it causes great pain. And this is where I want to talk about one thing before we move on that we'll need to wrestle with as we read the first part of Israel's history. And that's the presence of violence in these books. We see God's command to Israel regarding the seven nations that live in the land of Canaan is that they are to devote them to destruction. They're to wipe them out. We also see that there are specific sins that some of the Israelites even commit that God finds so grievous that they are put to death almost immediately. And understand what is often distasteful to our flesh. We kind of squirm at a God who has such power over life and death. It can only be understood when we understand with seriousness a biblical view of sin. We cannot make sense of God's story of salvation if we can't make sense of the story of our problem which is sin. And so I want to touch on a few things here. First, as you would have read when you get to this point in the book of Deuteronomy, the nations inside of the land of Canaan were totally depraved. We read that they even went so far as to frequently sacrifice their own children. And so part of the conquest that God prescribes is because the wages of sin is death. Later on, we'll see how the nations of Assyria and the nations of Babylon conquer Israel God's own people as part of God's plan to judge Israel for their own sin. Therefore, when we look at the, the land of Canaan and its conquering, it was not simply that they were conquered because God is keeping his promise to bring his people into his land, but it's also part of God's divine judgment on sin and wickedness. And what you'll also notice is that God's judgment is without prejudice. God's judgment is without prejudice. Sometimes, as you'll see in Joshua 7, God puts to death even the Israelites who sin. Sin does not discriminate. It does not care into which family you are born. It doesn't care about your income. It doesn't care about the holiness that you pursued last week. And neither does the God who is the just and true judge. This might make us uneasy to see that God is equally as concerned to judge those who seem to be part of Israel and those who are part of the nations. But as you'll read in this book, that the sins of a single person are always dangerous to the whole community. For instance, in this story in Joshua 7, a man named Achan is put to death for his sin. And he simply just stole some things he wasn't to steal in the course of a battle. It seems rather benign, like, geez, isn't there something better? But when you zoom back, it was on account of his sin that Israel then lost that battle and 36 of his brothers in arms were, were killed because of his sin. Sin is not merely personal. Sin is always public and corporate. Sin spreads and therefore it is God's grace to deal with sin, lest it cause more and more harm. And this is true even today. 
While God never calls Israel, in the rest of the Old Testament, he never calls Israel to treat any nations like he called them to treat those in Canaan. And while God's law, which we saw last week in the Pentateuch, which prescribes capital punishment for specific sins, is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, even us as God's people today should realize the reality and danger of sin and its need to be dealt with. As God's new covenant people in the church, we too are to be mindful of sin when it infects God's people among us. We are not to apply physical punishment to sin anymore because we are no longer a physical people. We are a spiritual people, but spiritually dealing with sin in your life is just as serious. Look at what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians to the church. In chapter five, we'll begin with verse six. He says, you're boasting. That's boasting at this sin that is unaddressed in the Corinthian church. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then skip down to verse nine where he continues. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, that is a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You, church, purge the evil person from among you. What's Paul's point? Rampant and unrepentant sin exists in the world, and it's often ignored. But rampant and unrepentant sin cannot be ignored inside the church. Why? Because if you're God's people, you are transformed by God's presence. That doesn't mean that we're sinless, but it means when we encounter sin in our life, we grieve for it and we want to repent of it. And it can't be ignored. Why? Because it spreads. We just came out of a pandemic of global health hazards and masks and keeping distance. There is no greater public hazard than sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will break. It will destroy. I took one class in seminary and we always learn we should obey because it brings us joy. That is wonderfully true. But one professor spoke to us as pastors and he walked through all the things that one stupid act of sexual immorality will destroy in your life. It will cause you to lose your job. It could affect your health. It could cause you to lose your wife and your children. It could shatter everything because the wages of sin is death. And so the Lord has prescribed, even to the church today, the act of church discipline to deal with unrepentant sin for the good of the sinner and the security of the church. He's also ascribed the ongoing work of discipleship to cultivate repentance in the face of sin, that when we see sin, we don't ignore it, but we bring it into the light of Christ together with no shame, knowing that Jesus has taken away our reproach. If anyone inside the church or outside the church rejects God's merciful call to repentance, this call, this violence, this weight of judgment is deeper than physical death. There is a worse end than physical death for all who die apart from the merciful work of Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death and sin is dangerous to God's people. But God gives mercy to sinners who seek him. And this is what we see almost immediately. There's all these laws about God saying, when you go in, devote it to destruction, devote it to destruction. And all of that is true. But what happens as they go in? They go to the city of Jericho and there is a prostitute who fears God, helps God's people, and she is spared. God's mercy makes a way through God's judgment. They are not at odds with each other, but they are perfectly united with a God who is just and a God who is merciful. God's mercy to repentant sinners shapes our discipline and it informs our discipleship. But the primary tool God gives us to realize this mercy is not ongoing discipleship. It's not the unique informative act of church discipline. It's actually the cross of Jesus Christ where we realize that sin is desperately violent. That his death was fitting because our death is fitting. But Jesus has offered to take the sword, 
the nails, the spear, and the cup of God's wrath in our place so that we might receive mercy through faith. Jesus is the leader we need to deal with our sins and grant us the mercy which transforms us to live in light of God's promise of redemption. Sin demands your death. And apart from God's leader saving Israel from their sin, we are destined to repeat the same errors and have lives filled with the same bloodshed as this. And this is the big idea. The danger of sin and the ability of a leader to curb it and to care for it. That we get a track through the rest of the story. And so are you guys with me right now? We good? Because I'm just going to real quick, I'm going to walk through just the kind of the, the broad story of these six books. And so we're going to look now at the book of Joshua and seeing this play out. In the book of Joshua, he picks up where Moses left off, hoping to lead God's people into the promised land. And look at what happened as they crossed the Jordan River into the land of promise in Joshua chapter 3, verses 7 through 17. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Put, the, put a pin in that. That's an important theme. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. And when you come, remember the Ark is where God's divine presence dwelt. And when you come to the brink of the Jordan River, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And he without fail, he will without fail drive from you before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan and the waters of the Jordan will be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So the river's gonna stop. So the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with a priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. In other words, the water was deep. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarethan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel were passing over on dry ground until the nation of Israel had finished passing over the Jordan. So what do we see here? We see as God's people went into the promised land to face the nations that live there, that God's work of the Exodus was not done. That God's presence was going before them. And as God's presence went into the water, we see that not even the forces of nature themselves stand a chance against God's promise. You see, when you look at the sin in your own life and the work God's doing to sanctify you, you might look and say, this is impossible. I will never find peace, I will never find contentment, I will never find change. But to have God's presence is to have hope. To have hope that the mighty working God of scripture who has promised to redeem a people for his own good, it's your promise as well through faith in Jesus. And the initial success in the promised land is astounding in the book of Joshua. God did exactly what he said he would do. Military conquest follows. Though outnumbered and outguns, nations fell to the people of God. Why? Because God's presence was with them. And there were fearful moments, just as there is in our walk of wrestling with sin and dealing with dangerous circumstances. But Joshua, God's good leader, managed to keep them united, to fan the flame, to show that God, he is faithful. They were God's people. They were in God's place. They were being led by God's presence. But guess what? Joshua dies just like Moses. He was just as human. And he was beginning to die before the land was fully conquered. And so to prepare the people for his death... Joshua issues land deeds. And you will come some beautiful day in the future 
to Joshua's chapter 13 through 21, and you will read what are quite possibly the most wonderfully boring words in all of Scripture. As Joshua says, that the tribe of, of Manasseh will get this land and this land, and the tribe of Judah will get this land and this land, and the tribe of Joseph will get this land and this land. And you're like, this is taking a long time in a sermon. Yeah, it's going to take eight chapters, eight days of sitting through this. But this is Joshua giving beautiful, hopeful, divine comfort to his people. He's saying this, I might be dying. There might be work left to do. But God's promise and God's might does not die as I die. I'm giving you receipts. These are your new addresses. Trust me and take it. The Lord will not fail you. He has not failed you yet. Treasure this land. Go forth knowing that God will keep his word to you. Love him, serve him. Joshua knows that he needs to get his people beyond himself and connected with God. In, as he's dying, look at how he encourages these people in Joshua 23, verses two through six. Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges and officers, and he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes these nations that remain, along with all the nations I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea to the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God has promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Do you see what Joshua is doing? As God's representative ruler, he's saying, I'm dying, but God's rule is not. Be ruled by his word. Trust his promise. Become God's people. But problems follow as the book of Joshua ends and the book of Judges begins. We find if you just flip a few pages forward into Judges chapter one, that the people don't finish the conquest as Joshua has prescribed. And Joshua dies. And I want to read a larger portion of the book of Judges for us this morning, but it's key for us to understand all the significance of what's going on in these pages. See if you can notice the problem of leadership that raises up in these passages. We're going to be in Judges 2. We'll read verses 6 through 23. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work of the Lord, that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timonath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are the false idols of the people of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. They submitted to their rule. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days by the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, 
I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Do you see the problem? God brought Israel into the land so they might serve God and get rid of idolatry, but they refused to trust God and instead violated his covenant. They became just like the other nations they were supposed to, be dis, or they were supposed to dispossess. And why did they sin so much? Because as each leader failed or died, another generation came. And as judges would come, they would save and they would do these wonderful things to show that it was not any judge who was powerful enough. You read the book of Judges and notice where God's deliverance comes from in those judges. It's from random ways that aren't supposed to make sense. And that's the point. The judges aren't special. The God of the judges is special. But each time we get a judge, the fall gets worse afterwards and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until we reach the ominous note at the end of Judges that we looked at during Advent, Judges 21, 25, where it says this, notice the problem of leadership. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Without a good king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Guess what your righteousness gets? Devastation, pain, violence, strife. Our rightness is not sufficient. But now we get to Samuel, first and second Samuel. Samuel was a good priest who helped restore God's presence, but even as he began to die, look again at the danger that comes at the end of the life of God's rulers. First Samuel 8, verses four through five. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they asked, Give us a king to judge us. And so here we see the people of Israel recognized a problem, the right problem. The problem you should read as you read the history. Israel needs a better leader but they turned to the wrong source. What did they want a king like? Look back at what does it say? All the nations. What's God's point? Don't be like the nations. Be distinct. Your problem is not that you're unlike them. The problem is that you're like them. Why do you want a king like them? And this is where we get insight as to how we understand God's rulers here. They're rulers set up by God, the great ruler. All these rulers are physical representations of God, the great king. Because look at what God says to Samuel after he allows Samuel to appoint a king, if you just skip down to verse seven. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So up until this point, there has been no king of Israel in the flesh. But look, there's always been a king of Israel. You see, behind the judges, behind the prophets, behind Moses, behind Joshua, stood God, the king of Israel. And the people couldn't see it. Even the good leaders, it wasn't clear enough in to connect God's presence to the man who ruled them. So God gives Israel the king they think they want. They go out and they find the strongest, the tallest, the baddest man in the land who ironically is hiding in a pile of luggage because he's scared, but he looks like the other kings. And so they appoint Saul as king, but his heart was not good. He was sinful. He didn't lead his people into God's rule. So God appoints another king, one who is according to God's own heart, one who is small and insignificant, one who is hidden in the fields by his father when Samuel came looking for a king, one named David. But David was a man after God's own heart and God entered into a remarkable covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. Pay attention to this. So last week we saw the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, and here is the Davidic covenant, the covenant God makes to David, beginning in 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. 
This is God talking to David. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God was going to rule his people forever through the line of David. He was going to the means by which God's people, God's place and God's presence brought the blessing that they were meant to bring. But guess what? We're only a couple pages before David sins bigly. Then his son Solomon takes over. The same one who we read earlier, who prayed for wisdom, who God promised would be the greatest and the best in all the land. Moreover, Solomon built a temple. God's presence dwelt there in the land, in Jerusalem. And here we get into the themes of First and Second Kings. In First Kings 8, Solomon dedicates the temple and the ark of God's presence, the presence that's been traveling with them, finally comes into the permanent place of the temple. And they're in God's place and they have God's presence and they are God's people ruled by God's promised king. And look at what Solomon prays. Notice the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings 8 verses, let me get there. 1 Kings 8 verses 59 through 61. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Do you hear Deuteronomy 4? Let your heart, people, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments at this day. Solomon knows that just to have God's presence in the temple is not enough. God's presence must be ruling his people. It must be diversified in the midst of them. And here we have God's people, God's place, God's presence. And Solomon is saying, serve this God. Was this it? Was this the ending? Everything went according to plan. But a mere two chapters later, we read about how Solomon, the one who is pleading night and day before God himself, didn't obey God's laws. He took multiple wives from the surrounding countries and worshiped the false gods of his wife, the same man who built a temple to the exclusive God of Israel began creating temples for false gods. And the people followed. And the kingdom fell. The rest of the book of First and Second Kings track a devastating civil war. On behalf of David and Solomon's sin, Israel splits off into two. In the north, there is those who are rebelling against the house of David, and they become the nation of Israel. And in the south is the nation of Judah, and they would carry God's promise to King David. And the rest of the story unfolds like this. The kings are alternating back and forth. You read of one king of Israel, and then a king of Judah, and then some more kings of Israel, and then a king of Judah. Israel, for the most part, has entirely wicked kings. They cause great harm to the people. They lead the people in sin. And in 2 Kings 17, on account of their sin, the nation of Assyria comes and carries away the nation of Israel forever. The failure of Israel's kings led to the total destruction of the people, a removal from God's place, and a lack of God's presence. Judah, though, having God's promise, enjoys a bit more stability. For the most part, they have better kings. But none of these kings are good enough to stabilize the people's faith. And the question remains, who will safely secure God's people? And we get glimpses of hope. We read of the wonderful reforms of King Hezekiah. It is great. Here it is. And then Hezekiah falls away into sin. And then we meet Josiah. Mm, we love Josiah. He is so good. He is so pure. 
He is so noble. He does not turn away into sin. And then in one paragraph, Josiah goes out to battle and dies. And that's the end. (laughs) Who will lead God's people? Apparently, another nation. By the end of the books of Second King, because of the failures of Judah and her leaders, they're carried off into captivity by the nation of Babylon. But in the last chapter of Second Kings, in something that seems like a throwaway verse, that we close at the end of our book and we check off our Bible reading for the day, the king of Babylon releases the king of Judah from prison. He doesn't kill him, which would have been the normal course He doesn't send him back to Judah, but instead he just lets him live amongst the princes and the nobles of Babylon. And why is this significant? Because even though God's people had been removed from God's presence, transported out of God's place, God left a king of Judah alive. The promise to David was not dead. The forever kingdom, the redemption of all things, the death of sin still stood a shot. Why? Because the great king still ruled. As long as God's king is on the throne, God's people have hope. And this is where we close briefly by savoring the savior of the story. Consider how Jesus is introduced in Luke's gospel. In Luke just... Uh, I'm going to read verses 31 through 33. Only through 32 is on the screen, so don't panic. Just listen here. Luke 1, 31 through 33. An angel speaking to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is David's long-awaited son, the king from the line of David. But more than that, unlike men who died, look at what happens in Colossians 1 when Paul speaks of this, and notice the theme of presence and rule. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The God who dwelt in wonderful presence, but without an image, now has an image. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Do you hear Deuteronomy 4? There is none other in heaven or on earth, but here is one. Here is Jesus Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be the exclusive king. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is not only the divine presence of God, but he is the divine presence of God in human form. He unites the ark of God's presence with the king of God's perfect rule. God's divine presence and his divine rule meet in Jesus Christ, the son of God in the flesh. You see, when you examine your own life, you might, like Israel, have a picture of what your saving king looks like. And you might run to it and run to everything to bring you the promise of presence, place, and personhood. You grasp for tall kings, deep pockets, and broad love. But here is the king in all of his beauty. And how do you respond to him? We respond by doing what we should have done all along. We worship him. We cut down the bales, we get rid of the Asheroth, and we submit ourselves to his rule. Why? Because there is none more lovely Philippians 4 verse 8 says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Israel knew their hope. 
but it was filled with lesser heroes and failing kings. But look at what John shares in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, beginning in the second part of verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Brothers and sisters, you have the choice of a ruler who is himself a failure, fallen, created like you, or the ruler of those who seem to do good and are well, but who are crippled by the curse of humanity who dies. But here is the firstborn from the dead, the one who is pure because he was the son of God, the faithful king who instead of being persecuted for his own iniquities, took the stripes of your sin and died the death you should die so that we now know that death cannot crush our king, that our hope is not frail or fickle or fallen, but risen, resurrected, and ruling forever, and that his desire above all things is that you should look and live in light of this God, that everything else has the mask stripped away to reveal the ghoulish face of Tolkien's ring wraiths, And here is the image of God himself in human flesh. Will you realize that in Jesus, as you are stuck in the darkness of Israel's history, that here is the one who rewrites yours. Here is the king who calls us not to himself, but to his holy rule. Here's the rest you need from the weight and wars of depravity. Here is the dominion of God, which is called one thing, mercy. Mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you be ruled by him, by seeing him in his word? This is the story of God and his people and his faithful leader, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you warn in Proverbs that where words are many, transgression is not lacking. (laughs) And there are many words today. But Lord, I pray that behind these words is your word. The word that has come to rule in our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, today, may our goal be simple, that we might see Jesus in his glory and submit our lives to him. Amen.